thanks Dr. Dash for the wonderful introduction and uh, to Siri and the organizers for inviting me to speak here. Uh, so I'll be talking uh, a lot about uh, the work I did as a postdoc, which was focused on developing an autologous airway stem cell therapy for treating CF sinus disease. And then I'll sort of end with a little bit about how we're trying to work to improve some of these tools that I worked on as a postdoc. So I wanted to sort of start this talk with sort of a re-emphasis on why we need uh, better gene therapies for CF. So we all know that CF is really well characterized in the, in the European and North American population. And, we, and that's where we have this documented uh, CF population of about 70 to 100,000 people. And in this population, over 90% of people can be treated using modulator therapies. But we also know that CF is present in all of these other populations as well, but at a lower frequency. But that said, about 80% of the world's population actually lives in Asia, Africa, or South America. And then we also know from work that I did with Zach Sellers when I was here and uh, work done by Dr. McCauley and McGarry, and, and I think Dr. McCauley is speaking tomorrow, right, that when you look at all of these other populations, the number of uh, people who are not responsive to modulated therapies is, uh, is higher, right? And, and so when you combine these two pieces of information, you start coming to some sort of, this sort of a conclusion where I think that there might be more people with CF out there than we currently recognize, and that the need for something that's uh, not modulated therapy may be higher than we currently appreciate which then like takes us to the next question of when we're thinking about these therapies, are there particular variants that we should be thinking about, right? And, and so one of the things I did was I went back to our paper and uh, the other papers that have been previously published to look for how these, gene, these different mutations are spread throughout the CFTR gene. And what you can see is that one, uh, these mutations are spread throughout the CFTR gene. Uh, and then of course, the other sort of glass half full conclusion is that FI8-DEL is still the dominant variant that's present in all of these different populations. So even if we try to make modulators more accessible to people across the world or different populations, then you can help a lot of people. But that said, when you're looking at all of these other variants that are present in these different populations, you start to think that perhaps replacing the CFTR cDNA may be the best way to help everybody up there with CF, right? And so when you're thinking about replacing the cDNA of CFTR, one strategy is to pursue transient gene therapy, where the idea is to use an mRNA or a viral vector to overexpress the coding sequence of CFTR. And then this work, I mean, this should work in theory, but then what this is gonna need is uh, redosing of this therapy periodically, which presents some challenges, right? And then uh, the other approach would be to correct the CF-causing mutations directly in the stem cells that give rise to the airway epithelium. And when you do this, the idea is that as these stem cells differentiate and give rise to differentiated cells, then those cells would express CFTR and then you could have a more durable correction of CFTR expression. The challenge here is that one, we still are not very good at editing non-dividing cells. And then as we heard in the previous talk by Dr. Jonas, that delivery to basal cells is still a persistent challenge, right? So the question is, how do we insert the CFTRC DNA uh, using CRISPR-Cas9 or other similar uh, genome editing approaches? So just to briefly introduce the audience to the idea of genome editing. So here we're using Cas9, which is a nuclease that was discovered in the bacterium. And that nuclease can be guided to a target locus using what's called a guide RNA. And then when the nuclease reaches your target locus, in this case, that's CFTR, it can induce a break. 
this break can be repaired using two different pathways, either non-homologous end joining or MMEJ, where you have insertions and deletions. And this makes the gene non-functional. So this is not what you want. What you want is homologous recombination, where if you have a, a double-stranded break, and then if you are able to provide a, a, an exogenous template that has homology to this break site, you can trick the cell into inserting any sort of exogenous information you want into that spot. So we use Cas9 as a protein, as an, as an RNP, and then we use a chemically modified guide RNA, and then we use adeno-associated viruses to deliver these HR templates. So in this case, we're using an AAV to deliver the CFTRC DNA. And this is all done in the context of a cell therapy. So the idea here is that you can take airway stem cells from people with CF, grow them out, gene correct them using CRISPR-Cas9, and then we have to figure out a way to get them back into, into the people, right? But of course, this is a bit of a challenge because nobody has ever done a cell therapy for, uh, for the airways. And so we recognized this. And so we thought maybe replacing the sinus epithelium would be a safer place to start. And then importantly, in people with CF, they experience chronic CF sinus disease. And, and the infected sinuses are thought to be a reservoir for seeding subsequent lung infections. And so we thought this would be a meaningful place to start. And so the idea is to isolate upper airway basal stem cells expand them in vitro, edit them using Cas9, expand them again, put them on some sort of a biomaterial, and then put them back into people. And so I'm not going to go into the details, but when I started this work, the, the focus was still on Delta FIO8. So all of this was first optimized in the context of Delta FIO8. And so you can see here that we were able to correct this mutation in the frequency of about somewhere between 40 to 60%. And then this was able to restore CFTR function partially in differentiated airway cells. Right? But then the question is whether we could extend this to larger segments of CFTR. And so one of the challenges, and I think this was mentioned before, is that CFTR is a large gene. So it's close to the packaging capacity of AAV. And so if you're thinking about packaging the homology arms that, you're, that are required to deliver CFTR, uh, and if you're thinking about including a self-tobal marker, you don't have room for any of that with AAV. And, and so when I was thinking about this, another postdoc in our lab, Rasmus Bach, had come up with a split strategy where the idea was to split your gene into two halves and then insert it sequentially. So the idea here is that you can induce a break in exon one of CFTR. So that's the very beginning of CFTR. And then you put in the first half of the gene, and then you put in a second guide site, which enables Cas9 to cut that locus again. And then you put in a second AV that has the second half of the gene. And then here we're including a selectable marker, truncated CD19. And so this enables you to then sort for the corrected cells. And then, so after correction, your corrected locus should have the correct CFTR sequence, and then it should also have the truncated CD19 cassette. And so as you might imagine, the process is a little inefficient. So you start with about 3% to 5% corrected cells, but then because you have the CD19 that's expressed on the surface, you can use flow cytometry or magnetic bead separation to then separate out the corrected cells. And so you can get this enriched population of corrected cells. And so here in uh, cells obtained from people with CF with different genotypes, you can see that we can get enriched populations of somewhere between 60 to 90% corrected cells, both from sinus-derived cells and from bronchial-derived cells. And so then the next question is whether this restores CFTR function. And so for this, we first differentiated these cells into air liquid, in air-liquid interfaces. And you can see that these differentiated cells produce ciliated goblet cells and also basal cells. And then we worked on uh, Osing chamber electrophysiology assays to look at the restoration of CFTR function. So the idea here is that a normal epithelium conducts chloride through CFTR. 
and then in a CF epithelium, that's not the case. And so if you look for CFTR function, you can look for that by measuring chloride transport. And so here, the, uh, what we do is we inhibit and activate CFTR and other ion channels to quantify CFTR function. So amylaride is a small molecule that inhibits ENAC channels. So we add that. And so that takes out the confounding ion channel. And then we add forskolin, which activates CFTR. And then we add CFTR inhibitor, which inhibits CFTR. And then so you see this drop in current and we measure this drop in current in response to CFTR inhibitor to quantify CFTR function and to see if we have actually successfully restored CFTR function after our editing process. And so in the CF sample, what you see here is that when you add forskolin, you don't see any response. When you add CFTR inhibitor, you don't see any response. And then in the corrected sample, you can see that there's a really nice restoration of both forskolin and CFTR function. And so we did this both in sinus and bronchial derived cells. And what you can see here is that you have the non-CF controls on the right side. You can see that there's CFTR function. And then on the left, you have uncorrected CF samples where there's barely any CFTR function. And then the corrected samples really nicely restore CFTR function to what you see in your non-CF control samples, right? And so one question you might ask is whether this sort of somehow affects the regenerative capacity of these stem cells because you've taken them outside the body, grown them, edited them. And so that's one question that we've been looking at more recently. So we've been using single-cell RNA-seq to look at how differentiated cells are produced by edited cells versus unedited cells. So on the right, you have the controls, and on the left, you have the edited cells. And you can see that the edited stem cells are able to produce all of the different types of airway cells that you expect a basal cell to produce. And then we also wanted to use this to look for our corrected sequence and what cells express that corrected sequence, right? Because one thing I worried about is whether these edited cells were actually edited or whether they were all outcompeted by the unedited cells that were mixed in the population, right? And so you can see in the top half that you have, we were looking for CD19. So you would expect all your corrected cells to be expressing that CD19. So you can see that most of these cells in red are expressing CD19, whereas you don't see that signal in the control samples. And then in the bottom, we looked for what are the cell types that are actually expressing our universal CFTR cDNA. And you can see that there's these four or five dots that are in red. So those are all the cells that are expressing our corrected CFTR cDNA. And that's actually sufficient for you to get non-CF level CFTR function, right? And so you just need a few cells in the epithelium, it seems, to be able to get wild-type level CFTR function. And of course, we also wanted to see the regulation of CFTR is somehow altered in this process because we're just putting in that entire gene in the beginning and really not uh, replacing any of the other regulatory elements, right? And so for this, we collaborate with Dr. Ann Harris at Case Western, and we were looking at changes in the open chromatin profile of the locus. And so, uh, and here's data from three different donors. And then the first uh, trace is the control, and then the second trace is the edited sample. You can see that the edited and the control samples are pretty much the same everywhere except for this region. And that region corresponds to where we're putting in the new CFTR sequence. But beyond that, there's really no change in that locus. So that kind of reassures us that the editing process doesn't change the regulation of that locus. And so we're good. Uh, and, and so then the other uh, sort of question Actually, that's premature. So the next question is that how do we sort of uh, take this to, and then apply this in the context of cell therapy, which means you have to get these cells back into the sinuses somehow. So one of the requirements for this we found out early on is that you need a delivery vehicle because if you deliver these cells without a scaffold, people can sneeze essentially and expel all the cells that you have put in their uh, sinuses, right? So we need uh, some sort of a, a scaffold to keep the cells in place. And then the second thing is you need a conditioning regimen. So there have been multiple papers that have shown that you can use naphthalene or sulfur dioxide or other toxins
toxic agents to injure the epithelium. And uh, you can get exogenous cells to engraft there, but you can't give people these reagents. So you need some sort of a clinically applicable method to ablate the epithelium in order for, for you to then deliver your corrected cells. And so this was actually a collaboration done with Dr. Don Bravo in the NIAC lab. And so first in my part of this collaboration, I screened for different uh, biomaterials that would support the growth of airway stem cells. So here you can see that fibrinogen and biosilk both support the growth of airway cells and biosilk as a laminin functional like spider silk. And then we were using matrigel as our positive control because this is a material that we routinely use to culture airway cells, right? And then uh, fibrinogen is sort of a nice find here because it's a human clotting factor. So you don't have to worry about immune responses against fibrinogen when you give this to people. It's already used in wound sealants, used in sinus surgery. Surgery. Uh, and then fibrin collagen gels have also been used in animal models. And then you have room to engineer gel composition and degradation kinetics if, if you need to do that in the future, right? And so for these reasons, we were really interested in uh, fibrinogen. And then in parallel, Dr. Bravo was looking at different injury models, right? So she was using sulfur dioxide as a as the positive control, but then we heard about polydocanol as a detergent-based material that can be used to injure the epithelium, so we were using that. And then we were also using mechanical injury, which in this case was just brushing, right? And then we were using this mouse that was that, that is engineered to express GFP and luciferase, and so we were able to get the sinus stem cells from this mouse and then use that in our transplantation studies. Right? And so what Don was able to show is that when we delivered these cells using natrogel, you were, we were able to get uh, the cells to engraft and you can see this really nice luciferase signal in mice. So, but matrigel is not something you would wanna give in people, it's derived from a mouse tumor. And so I took the fibrinogen biosilk that came out of my screen and then compared it with matrigel and then you can see the control here. But what you see here is that when you use matrigel from biosilk and fibrinogen in all three cases, you see a really strong luciferase signal in these transplanted animals. And then, uh, this signal is stable in the case of fibrinogen by, and, and matrigel for about 60 days. In the case of biosilk, the signal kind of went down and then sort of recovered. So we really sort of moved away from biosilk for this reason and for the reason that it's derived from spider silk, whereas fibrinogen is an endogenous human protein and it works really well in this situation. And so we wanted to move forward with fibrinogen for future studies. Uh, and then we also then um, sack these mice to look for the localization of these cells. And you can see here in the top that the transplanted cells really nicely colonize the sinuses. And in the slide here, you can see that the cells engraft and then they differentiate and produce all of the ex expected cells in that epithelium. So this was all really promising, but this was still mouse cells into mice. And so in the next set of studies, I engineered human sinus cells to express GFP and nanoluciferase. And then I used fibrinogen to then transplant these cells into mice. And so what you can see here is that all of these mice that are transplanted with these cells express uh, luciferase stably for pretty much a few months. And then this was, uh, so this was really promising. And then we repeated that in several different donors. And you can see in each of these cases that you have a really nice luciferase signal that lasts for several months. So we're still characterizing the, the histology and how this looks inside the tissue. But this was really promising. And so in some, what I've shown you is that there's a really nice proof of concept that you can use genome editing to restore CFTR function. You have proof of engraftment that these corrected cells can be 
placed back into animal models. I didn't talk about this too much today, but we can talk about it if people have questions. But we have also looked at off-target activity and looked looked at the potential for these heterotel form tumors. And we don't see any reason for concern here. So with this set of data, uh, we went to the FDA with the idea that we want to use a cell therapy where uh, if you have CF sinus disease, you would go to your ENT surgeon and then they would mechanically sort of debride the epithelium to remove that tissue. And then they would send us the tissue where we would grow out the epithelial stem cells from that, correct them, send them back the corrected cells with fibrinogen, and then they would mix them up and put them back into whoever needs to be treated for CF sinus disease. And CFRI was really instrumental in sort of going through the process and they supported us throughout this. Uh, and so this pre-IND meeting with the FDA was completed last December. And so we're currently actively planning to figure out what other follow-up studies need to be done to follow up on this, right? And then in the meantime, in my lab, we're thinking about how do we further optimize the genome editing efficiencies further because you still lose a lot of the edited cell product in the process of this, right? And so I kind of introduced before that you have two competing pathways that are involved in genome editing and you really want homologous recombination. So then there's been, there's been this idea that's been in vogue that maybe if you block NHE and MMVJ, you can bias the cells to go through or go towards homologous recombination. And so as I was finishing up here, one of the ideas that worked was that you were a, we were able to inhibit DNA PKCS and improve homologous recombination. So in this graph here, it was just these cells were edited, but we didn't add any PK inhibitor. But then in the, in the same samples, when we added DNA PKCS inhibitor, you can see that the editing improved by several fold. Um, and then there were other groups that were using the same PKCS inhibitor, but then also inhibiting this other gene called polymerase theta. And then they were also seeing that there were additive effects, right? And so when I moved, uh, one of the first questions I was asking was, how does this affect the insertion of the CFTRC DNA? Because in the previous slide, I was just correcting the F5 weight del mutation, right? But we really want to use this to replace the CFTRC DNA. And so here you can see that without PKCS inhibition, about 2.5% of the cells are edited and positive for CD19. But then when you add this PKCS inhibitor, you can see that that editing rate is improved by a factor of two to three. And this is really reproducible across different donors. And then uh, we differentiated these cells because one of the concerns when you added small molecules that could have non-specific effects and it could compromise the stem cell potential of that cell. But in this case, we were able to differentiate these cells and we were able to measure CFTR function. So in the red dots are the cells edited without PKCS inhibitors and the blue dots are cells edited with PKCS inhibitor. And then this, uh, so you have restoration of CFTR function that's comparable to wild type level function again. And then the Western blot shows that these cells to produce uh, CFTR. But again, the thing was that these uh, you're still not at the 50% threshold, right? So you still need enrichment. So we were really trying to see, can we get it to the point where 50% of the cells are corrected so that you can get rid of that enrichment step in this process. And so we were trying to combine DNA PKCS inhibition with Paul theta inhibition. So you can see that when you have no compound, you have a certain level of editing. And then when you add the PKCS inhibitor, you have an improvement. And then when you add both PKCS inhibitor and Paul theta inhibitor, you have a further improvement in the editing levels. However, uh, there is a reduction in the viability of these cells when you block multiple DNA repair pathways, which is not really surprising. And so we then tried to see, okay, is there a benefit uh, of using either of these inhibitors, right? And so what you see here in terms of cell yield is that when you use just the PKCS inhibitor to improve your editing efficiency, you get about a two to three-fold improvement in the number of edited cells. But when you use both PK inhibitor and pot theta inhibitor, 
you really don't see any benefit because whatever improvement you get in editing, you kind of negate that by making the cells less fit. Right. And so then as we were doing these studies, we were starting to think about whether we could use an alternative template that doesn't have any of these packaging capacity limitations. And so one of the one such modality is single-stranded DNA-based editing template. So that's something we've been comparing. But what you see here in the context of just correcting Delta FIOA is that AAV can give you about 100% correction of mutations if you use DNA-PKCS inhibition. But single-stranded DNA really isn't that efficient in correcting, in, in gene correction. So we're kind of not there yet. So we're still continuing to see how we can make some of these other platforms work better so that you can sort of insert the whole gene in one go without having to do any sort of enrichment, but we're not there yet, but working on it. Uh, and, and so with that, I would like to summarize that one, there's really a need for alternative therapies for restoring CFTR function across the population across different populations. To insertion of the CFTR cDNA can restore CFTR function to wild type levels. We just need to find better ways to doing it. And, uh, and then modulating repair, DNA repair pathways can improve CFTR cDNA insertion. And with that, I would like to acknowledge the current members of my lab, current collaborators, uh, Dr. Matt Porteous and uh, the rest of the Stanford team uh, and uh, sources of funding, particularly CFRI and I'm open to questions.